Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, John Campbell. I'm a veterinarian and a professor here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. This week, my guest is Dr. Chris Clark. Chris is a clinician and a faculty member here at the Vet College, and he works primarily with cattle and is also our Associate Dean Academic. In that role, he helps direct our curriculum and admissions process, and we have a brief discussion about some of the new things going on here at the college as well in this podcast. However, this week, the main topic that Chris and I are going to discuss are some of the causes of sudden death in cattle. Let's get started. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast again. It's great to have you here. Uh, before we start today, i just maybe get you to introduce yourself to the listeners again and just uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Clark. I'm an associate professor at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, my speciality, I guess, is in uh, large animal internal medicine, mainly uh, cattle, sheep and goats. I do do a little bit of horse work. Um, and currently I am the associate dean at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Right. And you spent time in practice years ago and uh, certainly have done a lot of clinical work here at the college over the years. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about your associate dean job just for a minute before we get into yeah. our topic for the today. I think some of our listeners might be interested in our agriculturally focused seats. One of the things that we've recently started with the provinces that we serve, uh, some of the Western provinces and the college have worked together is to create these. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it actually, it really came out of, you know, it, as we have conversations as a college with all the various stakeholders, veterinarians, agricultural uh, groups, etc. We recognize, I mean, there's a massive shortage of veterinarians in all aspects of veterinary medicine, but there's no doubt that rural agricultural practice is perhaps feeling the pinch more than others. And so we started having a, a really close look at our admissions policies to see if they were doing what we wanted and could we do perhaps more? And so really, as a result of that, we came up with the idea that we would set a certain number of our seats aside for applicants who came from um, a background that showed they had a real interest in large animal practice. Um, and this obviously is because we want to serve Western Canada. We want to produce uh, graduates that want to go into those large animal practices. But as we looked a little more closely, obviously, it's, it's tough to get into vet school. You need good grades. I think people have known that for years. One of the other things that came out of our research was that um, th there's a, a risk that some of these kids who come from rural backgrounds who've attended really small schools don't always transition to university very well. And their first year of university is not great. Um, and those grades can kind of haunt them when they're applying to vet school. So what I've sort of described our current uh, plan is we're just putting our thumb on the scales a little bit, just trying to redress the balance. So what we've come up with is um, applicants to vet school, they apply as regularly. If they get in, that's great. But then we've got some seats set aside after the first round, specifically for students from an agricultural background. So it's five out of 20 seats from Manitoba, five out of 25 seats from Saskatchewan, and six out of 40 seats from British Columbia. And in order to be eligible for those seats uh, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, it's roughly the same 
process, you have to have graduated high school uh, in the province that you're applying from. You need to have 1,000 hours work in commercial animal agriculture. And the reason we pick that is because we, we want people who absolutely understand animal agriculture. They're committed to animal agriculture. And 1,000 hours, when you break it down, is the equivalent of two summers. But our hope is that some of these people applying grew up on a farm. They've been doing this for 23 years. Like, that, that shouldn't be too tough. Um, and then in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, you have to be enrolled in the animal science program and taken uh, the animal production courses, which are typically third year courses. And so that group of applicants gets a second kick at the can. And, uh, you know, this was the first we tried it. I've been very pleased that I think it's doing what we want. Oh, I should add, sorry, British Columbia, very slight difference. British Columbia doesn't have an animal science program anymore. So that third requirement has been removed. Um, yeah, so I've been, I'm pleased. I think it, it's opening up uh, the application to perhaps students who perhaps were discouraged in the past or unsuccessful in the past. Or we've got new people just uh, going through undergraduate program who want to give it a go. Um, and have a really good chance of getting into the program and then hopefully graduating and going back to serve agriculture in their home communities. Great. Yeah. And we, you should just emphasize that lots of those students uh, with agricultural backgrounds get in on the regular pool oh, as well. Yeah. Uh, so this is just additional seats that, as you say, sort of tip the scale a little bit uh, so we get a few more of those uh, people that are potentially go into those kind of rural practices. Great. Well, today we want to spend a bit of time chatting about our topic for the week. Uh, this time we want to chat about sudden death in cattle, which is kind of a weird term. And we were discussing this ahead of time about how you define that term. And there's not really probably an easy definition. Uh, how would you sort of explain it? I think the way I kind of, the way I sort of see it in my mind is I assume that you've got an experienced producer checking cattle maybe twice a day and they went out and checked them, everything looked good. They go back 12 hours later and there's one or more dead cows. So there was never any evidence of clinical signs. And that's quite unusual because, you know, anybody who's been around cattle knows cattle normally get sick. You know they're sick, you struggle to treat them, maybe get the vet to come out and depending on what it is, they'll die. But animals that go from healthy to dead in less than 12 hours is unusual. Um, I will add the one caveat to sudden death is the experience of the producer, because if you've got a producer who's been around livestock all their life, they're very good at picking up some of those subtle signs. And I think, John, you and I have both been in situations where a producer doesn't have as much experience and was actually missing something. So what was called sudden death perhaps wasn't really that sudden. It's just some subtle signs were missed over the preceding day or two. So I just want to stress, we're going to talk about, I think, the ones that are truly sudden, that go from healthy to dead in less than 12 hours. Right. And we should add that there are situations too where cattle may be on extensive pasture situations oh, and yes. producers aren't able to check them every day. Maybe it's every three days, every week, yep. whatever that may be find a dead animal there. Well, that may or may not be sudden death. That animal may have had clinical signs that yeah. might have might have just been missed because they weren't able to check it every day. 
That's a really good point. This is a big topic because there's yeah. a lot of wide variety of conditions that can result in sudden death. And we could break them down into different categories. We could talk about infectious and traumatic and metabolic and probably all sorts of other ones. Let's start with infectious causes of sudden death uh, first of all. So what would be some of the things that we might include on that list? I think like, you know, if I'm thinking about truly sudden death from infectious causes, the, the big two for me are the clostridial diseases and anthrax. Um, you know, both very well-known diseases that have been recognized literally for centuries affecting cattle. Okay. And we, and we could certainly add to that list and add some other ones, but let's talk, let's yeah. just spend a bit of time on clostridial diseases. Mm. Again, there's a long list there because yeah. these are the diseases that are in our seven-way or eight-way vaccines that yeah. many producers would be familiar with. Uh, we're going to focus on the most common one probably. Yeah which would be black leg. How do calves get that clostridial infection and what might we see? Okay, so black leg is one of these strange diseases. So it, it's a bacterial disease. The bacteria form these things called spores. And you can think of a spore as being like a, a bacterial egg. It's got a really tough outside coat. It, it'll survive for years, essentially, and they, they get into the soil. And what happens is the cattle eat the spore and we don't fully understand all the details of this, but the spore gets into the body and basically lodges in the muscle somewhere. And in the muscle, it probably won't ever do anything. But what happens is we believe that if the animal gets bumped or banged or bruised, you're creating an area in that muscle that's been damaged and doesn't have as much oxygen. And that's the trigger to make the bacteria reactivate. So the, the bacteria starts to grow and all clostridia have this thing in common where as they're growing, they basically leak toxins into the tissue. And these toxins are incredibly potent. And, you know, once that bacteria starts to grow, the toxins produce very, very rapidly and the animals simply drop dead because the toxin shuts down their organ systems. Right. And we can actually see multiple areas affected. Sometimes it's, it's skeletal muscles like the, in the leg or someplace like that. But I've seen outbreaks where it's the heart affected yes. and they drop very quickly in that situation when the heart muscles affected or the diaphragm, yeah. uh, other places I mean, like that. I mean, you get them in the cheek and the tongue. Like it, it's really bizarre yeah. the way that happens. And I mean, you're, you're, we're sort of moving into it because the diagnosis in this case is based on the post-mortem and you need to do a really detailed post-mortem and literally go through the muscles in layers and you're looking for this area of muscle that's just black leg is a great term because it's just this black dark brown almost crunchy tissue really really unpleasant yeah it's really obvious when you do see it it's an easy disease to prevent obviously uh, we have very effective vaccines do you want to comment on that briefly yeah, no, I mean, so we, we talked about black leg as sort of the, the archetypal clostridial disease. All of these clostridia have, a, have this thing in common where the bacteria is lodging somewhere. I mean, sometimes it's the gut, sometimes it's the liver, doesn't really matter. But we've got these toxins, these, sorry, these, these vaccines that have been around now for probably about 80 years. They're just incredibly effective. Um, and the vaccine basically primes the immune system to deal with the toxins. And if you deal with the toxins, you don't die. 
Um, so it's an incredibly effective vaccine. Um, the vaccine is going to protect your animals after the initial course for at least a year. And this is where I think sometimes, John, you and I have run into this. They, people think of it as a calfhood vaccine and they don't follow it on in later life. And because we really don't have good evidence as to um, exactly how long this vaccine lasts, but we know it's safe, it's really not that expensive. Whenever I talk to producers, this is the vaccine you want to give annually. Um, the exact vaccine you use, it's good to have a discussion with your veterinarian because some of these diseases we recognize a bit of a geographical um, nature to them. Um, but basically, I would be telling anybody, I don't care whether it's like the old six-way, seven-way, eight-way, you, you want to be using one of these that's got black leg in it every year. I, I just think it's good management practice. It, it could save you a lot of problems in the long run. Right. You want to talk to your veterinarian to make sure you're using the appropriate vaccine for your situation because they do contain different clostridial yeah. diseases. Some have tetanus, some don't, uh, et cetera. They all have black leg. And the only place I've ever seen outbreaks of black leg causing sudden death, a whole bunch yep. of calves dying is in unvaccinated herds. So got to make sure you follow the label instructions and do all those things appropriately, but it should be easy to prevent. Yeah. There's lots of other clostridial diseases we could cover, but we may leave that for another episode. Let's talk about anthrax, a very important cause of sudden death that we need to be aware of. Why is it so important? Well, actually, it's perfect to discuss this at the end of September because it's it, typically a seasonal disease. So anthrax is actually, I mean, probably the oldest disease known in history. I mean, this is a disease that's been described for thousands and thousands of years. And it's very similar to Clostridia in some senses. So what we got with anthrax, again, it's a spore bacteria. So the bacteria form these incredibly tough spores. And these spores, we now know, can survive for decades in deep soil. They get into the deep soil. If the pH and the moisture in the soil is just right, they will stay there for years, decades, in fact, decades and decades and decades. There's been one experiment in a lab where they kept, they showed the spores were still alive after 70 years. And so typically what happens with anthrax is the ground gets disturbed in some way. So something happens to disturb the deep soil, bring the spores up to the surface. The spores are eaten by cattle. Um, the, the spores actually activate in the gut of the cow and the, the bacteria start to grow. They produce three incredibly potent toxins and the, the cows just drop dead. Now, the thing that's vitally important to understand about anthrax is what happens after the animal is dead, because this is what sets it apart from the clostridia. So the body is now loaded full of anthrax bacteria. If that body is left, and this never happens, if the body is left intact, the body will rot and the rotting process will actually kill the anthrax bacteria. The thing that always happens, of course, is the body is opened. And when the bacteria are exposed to oxygen, they turn into spores. And so what happens is the spores basically drain into the ground around the carcass. The carcass is predated by coyotes and birds and dragged all around the place. Um, the bacteria get dragged with it, and those spores are immediately um, uh, 
potent enough to be cause infection in other animals. The other thing we should stress right up the front is that the clostridials really aren't a risk to human health, but anthrax is. And so if you were to handle this carcass in the infected state, um, if you were to cut your hand or get the anthrax in your mouth, then you could get anthrax. And that obviously is very serious in humans. So we want to avoid that. So does it actually spread from animal to animal? We always have a bit of a debate about this. The, the, the answer is no, it doesn't spread from animal to animal. It spreads from animal to the environment and then to another animal. So, I mean, cows don't lick dead cows. It, it's not going to spread cow to cow in that sense. It's not spread in their feces. It's not spread through their breath. But it does leak out of the body very quickly into the soil and is then able to um, spread to other animals. The other thing I should add, actually, is I, I, um, I commented that it's really an August-September disease. Uh, and that's true, it is. The, what we understand in natural outbreaks, because obviously we see outbreaks where an electrical company has dug a trench through a field and suddenly cows start to die of anthrax. That's the classic. The other thing we see is when the weather, if we see flooding in the spring, and then we see drought at the end of the summer. That seems to be the classic. It's almost like the water washes the spores out of the soil. And then as the water sources contract down over the summer, the spores get concentrated in little areas, and then that leads to infection. And we also know that species are very variable in how susceptible they are to anthrax. The single most susceptible is bison. Bison, oh my God, like bison will just, they'll start dying of anthrax very, very quickly. Cattle are pretty susceptible. The other species, much less so. Uh, you know, sheep, goats, and I mean, people always are like almost annoyed by this, that birds and coyotes are resistant. So the, ver the, the vermin, it doesn't even affect them, but they're spreading it all over the place. We've had some recent outbreaks in Saskatchewan. Uh, you got an email or a text message from one of our former graduates. Uh, what was that message about? Oh, yeah. He'd, uh, I mean, he, he's a recent grad. He's, he's been out in practice now about uh, 15, 16 months. And uh, he got called out by one of his clients because some animals had died. And he went out and looked at them and he sent a text to us sort of uh, thanking us for his education because he got out there and the alarm bells went off in his head. And he recognized that this was potentially anthrax before he did anything stupid. And he's now working with that producer to uh, um, deal with that problem and also involving the provincial Ministry of Agriculture because it's a it's a provincially reportable disease. And I mean, it's not uncommon. Last September, another colleague down in the south of the province had an anthrax case. So it happens almost every year in a very localized manner. Some of the listeners will probably remember back in 2008, we had a sort of massive outbreak, the worst recorded outbreak in Canada um, in northeastern Saskatchewan and spreading over into Manitoba. That was the weather was just right that year and led to a terrible outbreak. So what's going to happen if a veterinarian suspected an animal died of anthrax and What's the process from there on in? So, I mean, the first thing is you need to make sure it's anthrax. So um, in this province, we have access to these rapid test kits. We get them from the U.S. Navy of all places, but you can get a rapid test kit and that will give you a pretty good chance to understand that it's anthrax. 
Samples have to be sent to either PDS or Lethbridge for confirmation. Um, you contact the ministry to let them know that you've got a suspected anthrax case. They'll want to ask you some questions and then they're going to help you manage the case. So what they're going to ask you to do is to shut your farm down, no livestock in, no livestock out, just for a short period of time. No one's going to start killing animals. We don't do that with anthrax. Typically what we'll do is they'll do a risk assessment and we have two options with anthrax and it, you can't do both. You have to do one or the other. You can treat any animals that look sick with antibiotics and actually straight penicillin is really effective. It'll, it'll deal with animals that are sick if you catch them when they're sick. Um, and more commonly what we do is we bring in the anthrax vaccine and we vaccinate everything on the farm. Um, that can be problematic. It, it's, it depends on what species you're dealing with. You may not have handling facilities. We recognize it can be a giant annoyance, especially with bison, because they may have calves at foot. You can't run them through a chute. Sometimes we have to medicate. I've been involved in situations where we put medication in the water for bison. But the ideal thing is to vaccinate everything. That will put an end to the outbreak. And then typically we recommend vaccinating for the next couple of years until the anthrax bacteria in the surface soil have gone. Um, and then it should be back to normal. Um, you know, so it, it's really a question of spotting that first case, because if one animal's died, other animals are at risk. And also recognizing the fact, you know, we'll talk about what to do when an animal dies suddenly. Don't play with it. You know, that's one of the, and this is why we worry about anthrax, because our grad student, graduate student was just so relieved that we'd stress this to them. Do not do a post-mortem or cut up a dead animal until you know it's not anthrax, because the moment you open the carcass, you spread the disease and you put yourself at risk. Briefly, what does the disease look like in people? You and I both have an interest in yeah. historical veterinary medicine and human medicine. And this is a very historical disease, but what does it look like in people? So the classic form in human is what they call cutaneous. So this is where you cut your hand and the bacteria gets into the cut on your hand. What you get is it, it, it'll start off looking like almost like a blister or a boil. And then the center of it will turn jet black and there will be a red ring around it. And it won't actually be that painful. Um, it's always described, I mean, this is getting into the history and everything else. It looks like a piece of coal embedded in your skin because the word anthrax is the Greek word for coal. So it looks like a piece of coal embedded in your skin. And if anybody ever sees anything like that, contact your doctor immediately. It, it's, it's concerning. It's not life-threatening at that point. Antibiotics will clear it up, but do that. Um, you can also get anthrax in your gut. It's much less likely, but it's like catastrophic food poisoning, bloody diarrhea, vomiting, massively high fevers, very, very nasty disease, but very, very rare. The skin form is the most common. Right. Used to be called wool sorters disease. Yes, as... it did. Yeah. Because the people dealing with the carcasses would, yes. yeah, I get it. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to some of the other causes of sudden death. There'd be some traumatic ones. What might those include? There are actually um, probably, I, I guess the classic one is lightning. Light, I mean, lightning is the classic uh, cause of that. It can happen from stray electrical current. Um, I've seen that more with calves in barns. Like it's rare out of pasture unless it's obvious because like an electrical pylon has fallen down. Um, that can happen. 
Um, and then you can get like um, catastrophic intestinal accidents where the guts twist and they lose blood supply and those animals will die rapidly as well. So, uh, oh, and finally, animals that just, I mean, stuff happens. This one's obvious normally. If the animals um, slipped and fell on an old metal pile and sliced their neck open and bled to death, you know, it's a cause of sudden death, but those ones are fairly easy to identify. Right. And, and I've seen stray electrical current in places where they've heated water bowls or something like yeah. that. And, and there's been some short or something like that. And you find a bunch of dead animals around that water bowl. Yeah. Main voltage doesn't normally kill animals. It's, it, it's weird, right? Most of the time they get a shock and they don't like it, but sometimes the circumstances are just right. Yeah. And it can kill a, a, a large animal. Sorry. Some producers might have insurance for lightning. How does a veterinarian diagnose that at postmortem? It's actually one of the hardest things because you're right. We get this phone call and the producer wants the vet to come out because they want to make an insurance claim. So they want the vet to make the diagnosis of lightning strike. So whether or not there's been a thunderstorm seems to be irrelevant because we often get these very localized thunderstorms. So you may not have even seen a thunderstorm if the cattle were a couple of miles away. You may have missed it. So presence or absence of thunder isn't always helpful. It's normally one animal, but there again are circumstances where there have been lightning strikes that struck into a group of animals and killed them. I've also seen where animals were sheltering under a tree and the tree was struck by lightning and all of the animals under the tree died. The classic thing from a veterinarian standpoint, I guess, is there's often a burn mark either on the top of the head or the top of the shoulders. You can actually see sort of singeing. And if you take the hide off, you'll find very damaged tissue right under that spot. And then there should be a corresponding, because that's where the lightning struck on the top of the animal. And then there should be a corresponding burn mark on the bottom of one of the legs where the lightning left. But, you know, it's it, that's what the textbooks say. I'll start off by saying that. I don't know how easy that is to find. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. I'm always reminded. Sorry, you both had this history. I think there's an episode. There's a sorry, a story in the James Herriot novels where he goes to make a diagnosis of lightning strike. And the farmer says, look, look, there's the burn. And James Herriot comments, yes, there's a burn there, but don't use a candle because there's like, like candle wax all around the burn where the farmer had tried to create the burn. So um, it, it's a tough one to be in the a vet, asking a veterinarian to look at any dead animal that's died suddenly is a good idea. But, you know, I don't know how common lightning strike really is. And sometimes it's hard to confirm it at postmortem. Yeah, in my experience, I rarely see the burn marks. We're kind of ruling out all the other causes yeah. of death. And then if we can't find anything else, we can say, well, it was probably lightning. Mm -hmm. One of our graduates uh, had a case where a fair number of animals had died. I don't remember the exact details, all in a location along a fence line or under yeah. a tree or something like that. Sounded like lightning. She was actually able to find there's lightning data uh, that you can find on the internet from uh, that show where all the strikes are happening geographically and was able to show show that, yeah, it was pretty likely that these animals had been struck, even though 
the postmortem is pretty tough to do if the animal's been dead for more than 24 hours. And, oh. and obviously there's yeah. nothing you can find at that stage in, in the summer in those animals. It gets pretty tough. Let's talk about bloat for a bit, another potential cause of sudden death. There are sort of two main categories when we, when we talk about bloat. We talk about free gas and frothy bloat. Do you want to talk briefly about the difference between those two? Yeah, so I mean, bloat is gas accumulating in the rumen. I mean, cows should be irritating or belching all the time to get rid of that gas. The rumen produces a ton of gas. So if the gas can't get out of the rumen, the rumen starts to massively enlarge and it puts incredible pressure on the lungs. And it also starts to um, completely inhibit the blood supply to the rest of the animal. So the animal will die. The two ways this happen is the animal can't belch. That's a free gas bloat. So that can happen when there's something stuck in the gullet. Um, it can occur with paralysis of the rumen, which is quite unusual. Um, but those animals just swell up like a tick and you just need to let the pressure off. The other type is free gas bloat, which is most commonly associated with alfalfa. And what happens there is due to the nature of alfalfa and its very high protein content, the, the contents of the rumen get very, very thick. And as the bacteria are fermenting gas, the gas gets trapped in the liquid. And the best way to describe it is the contents of the rumen sort of become like green shaving foam. And so those animals, there's no free gas to blow off. And they just get, again, bigger and bigger and bigger. And the pressure on the heart and the lungs kills the animal. Right. And so frothy bloat and free gas bloat... Uh, frothy bloat especially would be more of a nutritional category. Yeah. And it would be the one that we see more as an outbreak in a group of animals. Free gas would probably be more likely an individual animal where there's either an obstruction or something else going on there. Yeah. How do we deal with and treat the two? So, and it is important to understand, although we talk about them as bloat, it's better to think of them as two separate diseases because the way we treat them are completely different. So with a free gas bloat, um, you're going to want to get a stomach tube in the mouth, down the gullet, into the rumen and release the pressure. And, you know, any producer, if you've never done this before, talk to your veterinarian. It's not hard to pass a stomach tube in an animal and it's potentially life-saving. So you get the tube in, let the gas out, and that typically solves the problem. The one thing is you may find with the stomach tube that you actually can identify there's something stuck in the gullet. You know, you can't get the tube to go down, in which case the stomach tube is actually with a gentle sort of tapping motion may actually allow you to move the obstruction and let the gas out. So that's fairly straightforward. Frothy bloats, you need to get something into the rumen that will destroy the froth. And so you can get various products, uh, bloaties, bloat go, there's various products out there. They come in sort of a plastic bottle. You just drench that, pour it into the animal's throat, it will swallow it. And what that does when it hits the rumen is it just destroys the foam and releases the gas. Um, I mean, soap will do it, canola oil will do it, but the, the, the products are better. Um, and so that now turns a frothy bloat into a free gas bloat. The one thing you want to watch is sometimes those animals will start to burp immediately and you'll just see them deflate. Sometimes they're so bloated with foam that their rumen can't move anymore. So if you 
put down the um, the solution from the bottle, wait five minutes and nothing's happening, I would then pass a stomach tube to let the gas off. Some of those bloats are true emergencies. If that animal uh, starts to stagger or fall down or have severe respiratory distress, what should the producer do there? Well, so this is the classic thing that I think everybody's been told by their grandfather at some point. Like if, you, if you've got an animal that's on death's door and you, don't, you can't get a stomach tube into it, you don't have a tube and you need to do something else, the best thing to do is to relieve the pressure. And so, again, some producers may actually have what we refer to as a rumen trocar kicking around. Um, they come as red plastic or there's the old metal one. And the idea is to... If you look at the left side of a cow, you can see the last rib, you can see the um, the spines coming off, the tra- horizontal spines coming off the spine, and you can see the back of the pelvis, and it sort of makes that triangle where the rumen is, and that will be massively distended. And so you take that trocar and you drive it through. Uh, we actually need to make a cut in the hide and then drive that trocar through the skin, the rest of the skin, through the body wall into the rumen, remove the central core, and the gas will just come whistling out of there. Little hint, don't do this if you're a smoker or don't do it with a cigarette in your mouth because it's basically methane that comes out of there. People will always talk about doing it with a pocket knife. If you've got no other choice, you can do it with a pocket knife. The problem is, is that the, the... gut contents spill into the abdominal cavity and you get peritonitis. And so it's not great for the long-term survival of the animal, but it can be done. Yeah, I find with frothy bloat, severe frothy bloat, that the trocars maybe don't relieve it well enough. They're good for free gas, but uh, you almost have to use a knife or something to let them do it. And we deal with the any leakage that happens. It's amazing how little leakage happens because there's so much pressure. Most of that material just goes flying across the room and, and uh, you can deal with it then. So that's bloat. And we could spend a whole episode talking about bloat. There's some other nutritional and toxic causes of sudden death. What else might be on that list? Yeah, it's actually quite a long list. I mean, some of these are classics. Lead can act pretty quickly. So animals that get into lead, you may miss the signs. They may just drop dead with lead. Uh, Blue-green algae in water sources is incredibly toxic. and That will typically kill multiple animals, actually. Um, uh, Another one can be white muscle disease. Um, That can occur in some very strange circumstances where it affects the heart, so the animals can die suddenly. Related to that is menensin toxicity. So, you know, someone screwed up the menensin content of a ration, that can kill incredibly fast. Um, And I would say the other one, you know, John, you and I were talking about this beforehand, it depends a bit on the experience of the producer. Um, Problems with water sources, particularly in summer pastures, where there's an electricity supply to a pump and the pump has failed, you know, and people aren't, they go out and look at the cows, but they don't check the water trough. You know, you can only survive for a couple of days without water. And uh, we've seen that before where you can get really bad die-offs from uh, water deficiency. Yeah, there's been some catastrophic sort of situations like that. Blue-green algae 
Another one yeah. where we can see fairly big groups affected in and, and lead sometimes as well. We can see that. There's probably yeah. a whole long list of toxins we could add to that. Oh, and sorry, one other that I just meant to mention, and that is um, low magnesium, right. which we tend to see in the spring in beef cattle, particularly, I think it's where, you know, they just haven't been getting enough magnesium all winter. And then when the grass starts to grow, it really the gut gets confused about what it should absorb and what it shouldn't absorb. And if you don't have enough magnesium, your brain basically starts going into like epileptic seizures and the animals die very quickly. Well, you briefly mentioned white muscle disease. Let's just uh, talk about the cause of that. We tend to see that in fairly young calves and, and what's going on there. So there's two chemicals that the body needs. One is vitamin E and one is selenium. And what the body does is it uses those to scavenge up toxins that are produced naturally in muscle. And so if you don't have enough vitamin E or selenium, those toxins build up in the muscle and destroy the muscles. Um, so typically the animals get stiff, they can't get around, but we alluded to if it's the heart that's involved and your heart doesn't work, you die instantly. Um, so. If you go on the internet and look this up, it will talk about selenium at great length. On the prairies, it seems that this is a vitamin E problem. And vitamin E is found in fresh green grass, basically. And so it's not surprising when you think about the annual year of a cow in Saskatchewan, they get fresh green grass for like two months of the year, maybe three. And then everything after that is like older and doesn't contain as much vitamin E. So what tends to happen is they get vitamin E in May and June, they store it in their liver and they use it up and come May the next year, their supplies are very low and they typically don't pass enough onto their calves. And so the calves are at risk of getting this and dying. So, you know, it, it's a question of like a lot of these things, you can, you can supplement the ration with selenium, that's cheap. Vitamin E is much more expensive to supplement the ration with, um, but you know it can you can uh, you can test feed for vitamin panels, or you can grab some cows and run a vitamin panel just to get a sense. You know, is there anything lacking in the diet, and then you can supplement as necessary. Well, we can't cover all the causes of sudden death in one episode. We've sort of run out of time. We may have to come back and do a part two at some point, but yeah. maybe we could just finish off by talking about the importance of a postmortem when we have these unexplained yeah. mortalities. I think this is the thing that, you know, again, John, you and I have dealt with producers our lives. Um, when an animal's dead, the producer's attitude is it's dead. It's worth nothing. I don't want to spend money on it. But the, the worry is with almost all the diseases we've talked about today, with the exception of lightning, is that animal that died could be the index case. It could be the one that tells you there's more coming because anthrax, lead, blue-green algae, white muscle disease, clostridia, if one of them's died of it, the rest are at risk. And so the key thing is that sudden death, suddenly dead animal speaking to a veterinarian, getting a veterinarian to come out and take a look, do a post-mortem as necessary, can give you really valuable information. Yes, you can't do anything about the one that's dead, but you can prevent others dying. And so sudden dead animals are a great example of where you're investing a little bit of money for potentially massive benefit. Because 
the the answers of that post-mortem may well be actionable they may lead you to change the water source move the animals to another pasture do an emergency vaccination whatever it might be until you find out why that animal died it's hard to give any advice about whether it might happen again or whether you should make changes and so i think getting a veterinarian out to do a post-mortem and recognizing a lot of this stuff happens in the summer and that is getting the post-mortem as quickly as possible because animals rot really fast in the summer and you know an animal that's been dead two days i mean it's unpleasant to do a post-mortem on and you're really not going to get any information back but if the animals died suddenly getting the veterinarian out there to do a fresh post-mortem can be a really wise investment of both your time and money that's good advice i think also we should mention that in some cases the veterinarian may be able to make a diagnosis just off the postmortem on their own, but in other cases, they may also have to do some other testing or diagnostics, send them to the lab to sort it out. And uh, unfortunately, that's additional cost. But as you said, I think it's probably well spent to, to try to get a good diagnosis and figure out what's going on. And I think a lot of the diseases we've talked about, they're really classic because there are things. You need to know where to look, but there are often like things that can really give you a a good sense of what's going on at post-mortem in the field and give instant uh, results. You know, anthrax is classic, black legs classic, lead, you can see the lead, white muscles classic. Bloat can be a little tricky. We should actually say any animal that dies at pasture bloats. So just because the carcass is bloated doesn't mean it died of bloat. That's That always complicates things a lot for us. But uh, no, a, a post-mortem is a wise investment. Good point. Well, thanks, Chris. Appreciate you doing this again. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again down the road. So thanks again. No problem. Always happy to do this. Thanks very much, John. Bye for now. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Chris Clark. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.